0: This is a fresh agenda conversations to connect your productivity and creativity and generate your deepest work. Here's your host, Christina Mendoza. This is a fresh agenda where we chat with innovators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders. I'm Christina Mendoza. Welcome, glad to have you here for a while. This podcast is about having some deeper and more positive conversations on topics of creativity and motivation to explore how people create or build businesses or innovate in their industries. So today we are taking on healthcare with a very interesting guy, Dr. Zubin Damania, or as he's known by his alter ego, Z Dog MD. I
1: really want to immunize so freaking bad.
0: Protect you from those germs you've never. He's a rapper, as the name would suggest. He's an internist, and he created Turntable Health, which was a very ambitious urban revitalization healthcare movement funded by the CEO of Zappos.com, Tony Shea. He also worked at Stanford University Hospital for 10 years, and it was during this time that Zubin started doing some stand-up comedy, and then he moved into videos and song parodies. He uses humor to skewer some of the more offensive or ridiculous or dysfunctional aspects of the healthcare system. And uh, he takes no prisoners when it comes to this. He's also, though, quite optimistic about the future of healthcare, so we'll talk about that. I really enjoyed that part of him. So we're into summer, and after what felt like a very cold winter, at least by California standards, I am loving this heat. I know some of you don't like it. I I absolutely am loving it, particularly this year. I was back on TV in the last couple of months doing some reporting recently for CBS. I have more in the works for that. And our morning show at News 93.1 KFBK is really feeling like a well-oiled machine after a few months. Feedback's been very positive, so that's satisfying. And while there are never enough hours in the day, I'm somehow finding a little bit of time to unplug, get out for some forest hikes, and kind of refeed my own creative engine. And I hope that you are too. Don't waste the daylight. In fact, this podcast would be actually perfect to take with you out on a 45 minute walk or a hike. In fact, download the channel, subscribe to the channel, because this is like number 68, I think, in terms of podcasts. So I've got lots of interesting conversations with people that you can take along on walks or hikes. Before we get to my guests, though, a few words about my sponsor, the OG of sponsors on this show. Sorry, Z-Dog got me in the mood to talk that way. New Age Aerial, that's the sponsor, and they offer superior drone services of all kinds. The team has over 50 years combined remote control experience with fixed-wing, rotary, multi-engine vehicles on both land and water. The CEO of New Age Aerial is Dave, and he is fantastic to work with. He has a great team. They love what they do. So if you need still pictures or videos for your film, project, or real estate, even your wedding, you need HD, you need 4K, you need time-lapse, whatever you need, Dave will exceed your expectations. So give him and his team a call or look him up online. That's New Age Aerial, 916-645-3474 or newagearial.com. I first saw Z Dog MD when I ran across one of his episodes of Incident Report. It's a YouTube show. It's funny. It's very smart. Uh, he calls his two million subscribers the Z Pack. <laughs> Hysterical. And I hadn't even seen his song parodies, but did see a video that he did that just blew up on the topic of healthcare worker burnout, doctor burnout, nurse burnout, uh, you know, nurse practitioner burnout. He says what we all call burnout is actually moral injury. And that is a topic that I've actually done a lot of reporting on, moral injury as it pertains to veterans. And he uh, talked about it in the healthcare world. So it was very interesting. And his video got a lot of positive feedback. So that got me curious about him. He's a Berkeley grad. I told you already he worked at Stanford University Hospital for like 10 years. And these are not usually the guys that are big YouTubers, right? So his name even sounds like he's Dr. Super Serious. Zubin Damanya. But here's a taste of what he started at first as a side hustle.
1: No appointment, I walk in to your clinic complaining of pain. Doctor shopping once again. When I found you, I thought, oh my God, you really get me. And your last name's followed by an MD, you're my ticket to ecstasy. Uh, I mean, pain relief.
0: That one, of course, is all about doctor shopping set to a Taylor Swift song. I called him up as he was moving from Las Vegas back to California to find out how much doctoring he's doing these days and what he sees as the end goal of his speaking and creative content and the parodies and really his thought leadership. Dr. Zubin Damania joins me now, otherwise known as MD. Thank you so much for joining me for a little while.
1: What a pleasure, Christina. Thanks for having me.
0: You bet. Tell me a little bit about how you went from medicine to media and music. A little about how you got where you are now.
1: Well, you know, for me, working as a hospital doctor for roughly a decade at Stanford, I I saw all the flaws of the system that we weren't really keeping people out of the hospital. We were patching them up and sending them back out. And it led to a lot of, you know, what they call these things, burnout. It's really more of like a moral injury. You, you, You go into it to do the right thing but you're faced with a system that's really dysfunctional and you can't do it. So I've always been kind of a creative type, a little bit oppositional. I don't like it when people tell me what to do. So medicine was a strange choice, but it was a calling. So I thought, well, how can I kind of combine um, what I love, which is making kind of music and doing comedy and teaching with a, a sort of a, a mission to try to transform this very broken system because I know that my colleagues and my patients really want to do this. They just feel disempowered. So that's kind of how it started It's kind of almost a cry for help.
0: What kind of reaction have you received from the shows and from the music?
1: It's been kind of crazy. At first, I thought, you know, I'll, you know maybe on YouTube, we'll get a few views or something. And then it just became a, a, almost a movement uh, that was an overnight success in, you know, a decade. So you know, I've been doing it since 2010. I, I, I first started, and to to watch it kind of take off now, where we have you know roughly two million uh, healthcare professionals and activist patients as part of this movement across our social media platforms. It's been really, really amazing to see the response.
0: How do you decide what topics to take on? I mean, there are things that are personal to you, of course, but you know, pretty soon do you run out of subjects? Do you take suggestions? How do you come up with some of these topics?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a limitless uh, pool of stuff because it's such a huge uh, uh, space, healthcare in general. And so often it's things that like bother me, but then what I find is when I get a, you know, I get roughly 1400 facebook messages private messages a week and i go through and i see what the sort of pain points are for people what's going on what articles are they sharing with me and then i decide based on those sort of sensors what topics we should try to hit because they're important to people and they matter to the movement of trying to transform healthcare. So it's multifactorial how we decide what's going on. Sometimes it's just a dumb idea we come up with. We hear a new song and we're like, you know what, it'd be really funny (laughs) if we made that, you know, if we did a parody of Jessie's Girl by Rick Springfield and made it about, you know, how people covet other people's pens, in hospitals. It's, it's, it could be that dumb. Like everybody's looking for the perfect pen to write with, even though we're supposed to be paperless and electronic. Well, wouldn't it be funny? You know, I wish that I had Jesse's pen and, and <laughs> just done stuff like that. So it can be anything from totally dumb like that to something more convoluted, like end of life care and how we have these complex conversations and pick an Eminem and Rihanna song about domestic violence and make it about the violence we do to our patients when we don't have the conversations about what their end of life wishes are and that we torture them in the ICU with ventilators and feeding tubes and IVs when really what should have happened is a conversation about what their wishes are. I can't breathe, but you still fight, cause you can fight Long as the wrong's done right, protocol's tight half off of drugs, child sedate I'm like a pincushion, I hate it, the all suffer I suffocate, right before I'm about to die You resuscitate me, you think you've saved me And I hate it, wait, let me go, I'm and, uh, you people are afraid to have that conversation because it's about death, which people are terrified of Physicians feel it's a failure. So hitting these topics kind of head-on, those are more thoughtful choices we make. And then there's, you know, Jesse's pen.
0: Right, right. Uh, And I love readmission, by the way. I think that's my favorite.
1: Readmission was one where it was the perfect confluence. So we took a, you know, and R. Kelly's fallen into uh, disrepute now, but at the time— uh, it was a kind of a jam that people had forgotten about. That we brought it back, and the fun part about it was you can talk about a very serious issue, which is hospital readmissions. Why is it that you can send a patient home and they come back within 30 days because of something you did wrong or they did wrong or a mix of things? Well, we need to talk about that because these are preventable issues. Not only is it expensive, but it causes tremendous suffering. So make it a fun R&B jam, making fun of. How we screw it up, and then talk about how we can do it better.
0: Well, as you said, you do get into some really serious topics. You can do it, you know, with some with comedy, with dark comedy, with music. What happened to our healthcare system? I mean, do you have a handle on on what you think happened just in your decades of being a doctor? Because it, it does seem. I mean, I think about the healthcare system I had as a kid versus, you know, now what I have now. And I think, uh, thank goodness I'm done having children. I mean, every day I think if I had to have children or if I had a significant disease at this point in my life, I don't know what I'd do.
1: I'm with you. And and I I tell you, I tell my patients the, the most dangerous place you can ever be. Is in our healthcare system it, in the hospital it, because first of all we're terrible with medical errors. We have a non-system of non-communicating parts that are siloed off. It's a system that's evolved over the years based on a sort of third-party payer thing, where you have you know you're you're disintermediating the patient from the actual cost of care. So costs skyrocket. You have these big legacy players, whether it's pharmaceuticals, whether it's insurance, whether it's hospital systems, whether it's health that are. In, really have a vested interest in keeping the system as it is, even though it's just absolutely non-functional. So when when I moved to Las Vegas uh, from the Bay Area of California, the goal was to create a clinic that focuses on the main problem, which is we don't prevent disease, we don't coordinate care through primary care, because in this country, 5% of our healthcare dollars are spent on Primary care, your general physician, your uh, your obstetrician—people who are actually keeping you out of trouble—who are acting as the quarterback—and then the rest of the money we spend on the failure of primary care. So our model was, well, let's let's actually jack that up to say I don't know, ten or fifteen percent of total spend, and watch what happens. And what does happen is the rest of your healthcare dollars start to shrink because you're actually coordinating care. You're not doing unnecessary testing. You're preventing people from going to the hospital. We dropped our admission rates to the hospital by 50% for our patients. This kind of thing can actually work. You make it team-based. You So you, you use health coaches and nurses and pharmacists and doctors together. You use technology to actually bring them together instead of creating an obstruction where now you notice your doctor just stares at the computer instead of talking to you. You know why? Because the computer is an electronic cash register, that person can't get paid and can get sued if they don't click the right boxes. So now they've gone from looking you in the eye, having a relationship to being a data entry clerk. We don't ask our lawyers to be their own court reporters, yet that's what we're asking physicians and nurses to do. So uh, we we created this model that really, really worked, and we went out of business in three years. Why? Because the rest of the system wasn't yet ready for this. There's no way to pay for it. And now we're starting to see the transition happening where, no, this is the the only way we can move forward. So I'm actually very excited about where the future of healthcare is going. I think, you, you, you know, when when, you know, in five or 10 years, you're going to see a dramatically better system if we get this right.
0: Oh boy, I sure hope we do because just that image that you you explained of the doctor staring at the screen as you're sitting there in the examining room is so true. And then, you know, I recently had the experience of not only that, but then there's a third party apparently listening in that's taking notes for the doctor. So I've got this third party person taking notes for the doctor as he's checking boxes and I'm sitting there just answering questions and thinking, I could have probably all done this all from home on the computer.
1: You just nailed it. So it's funny. We break a system. We end up adding this administrative burden of charting that the doctor has to do. So how do you solve that? Hire another person. We call a scribe to sit in the room, be yet another sort of person, another body in the room during these very intimate conversations who's sitting there taking notes so the doctor can look you in the eye. How about this? How about we make it convenient. We get the technology to have some artificial intelligence that it can recognize speech and just sit in and take the note for you. And then the physician and the patient in a sacred relationship, it, it, a trusting relationship, that's what medicine is. That's the sacred art of healing. And we've lost it, but we can get it back. I mean, you, you as a patient, as a lay person, get it immediately. Why can't we get it in healthcare?
0: Right. Right. So let's let's move on to some of your big issues that you've tackled. Uh, this one is uh, particularly uh, of interest in California because we really have been kind of one of the centerpieces of the anti-vax movement. Uh, a lot of anti-vax uh, um, parents at the Capitol lobbying against, uh, especially one legislator, Richard Pan, he's been trying to close the loopholes for vaccination. Tell me, as a doctor, as you see it, I mean, you obviously think vac- vaccination is a good Idea? Um, have you had any pushback or or comment from your listeners or viewers?
1: Yeah. So Richard Pan is a hero, by the way, because what he's trying to do is save lives. And I think the issue with with the anti-vaccine movement, it's one of our platforms that we take a very hardline stance on because very few physicians. Uh, we have to behave very objectively. We're trained to be scientists, so we don't use uh, strong language. We use equivocal language, like "well, you know, the risks outweigh the ben- or the benefits outweigh the risks of vaccines." And so, what happens is uh, celebrities and people who uh, like to spread misinformation will take advantage of this by being absolutely certain in what they say. Vaccines are poison, and they cause autism, and they cause this and the mercury and the aluminum. And so, what we've done with our platform is that, "listen, the data all." All consistently show that vaccines are not only safe; they are effective. Now, let's communicate this using the same techniques, which is uh, we will, you know, go hard. We'll do satire, and we will make analogies and tell stories. Seatbelts are a great example. So, seatbelts happen to kill children occasionally. So, you can have an accident where the seatbelt can be responsible for the death of your child. Does that mean? that you go out and say, do not wear seatbelts, they're dangerous to children. That is totally backwards thinking. But that's what people are saying with vaccines. There are very rare, like one in a million serious adverse reactions. And yet, We prevent diseases that have killed and maimed children and continue to do so around the world. So it's a clear calculation, right? And not only that, but your decision, in other words, the liberty that you take with your body and your child's body, that's important. It's important to me, too. But when that liberty infringes on the liberty of others, in other words, your child makes an immunocompromised child, an old person, sick and kills them. That's where your liberty ends, is is damaging the liberty of others. So we feel very strongly about this, and we found that our platform is a great way to spread actually the correct information about this stuff in the face of celebrities like you know Jessica Biel and others coming out saying they're anti-vaxxers. And now if there's so much shame component to it, you have to come out and say you're an anti-vaxxer. Uh, which I think is appropriate. I think public shaming is, is not a bad thing in this <laughs> setting when people's lives are at stake.
0: And there was a recent uh, ruling that a child can get a vaccination against their parents' wishes if they want to.
1: I love it so much. I mean, again, we talk, I, I think, and listen, I'm going to say this. I actually have, I have a lot of sympathy, empathy, compassion for people who have anti-vax beliefs because oftentimes they have a moral sort of fabric that values liberty, it values the sanctity of the body. And so I understand why it would make them very nervous. It would feel emotionally wrong to stick your kid with a bunch of needles and give them these things. But the truth is they've been misled by the delusional 1% of anti-vaccine activists who are really a cult. And it's easy to be misled online when all opinions are equal. So now what we have to say is, okay, let's actually understand where they're coming from. Yeah, you should have liberty to make your own decisions, but here's here's why this decision is the right one. And that's to vaccinate your kids. Right. So we don't Mm -hmm. want to shame people on the fence. We want to shame the delusional people that you're never going to convince because they need to lose credibility because they have none.
0: That's interesting. You make that delineation because, you know, I am I am definitely for vaccination. But I when my children were babies and I want to bring them to the pediatrician, they say, oh, we're going to have eight shots today. That would make me nervous. That would make me nervous getting right. a bunch of different vaccinations at the time. And I thought, well, are they doing this because it's just cheaper to get it done all now instead of having me come in a couple of different times? So I would I would kind of push back and say, well, let's do like two or three today and then come back and do the others.
1: And you, and you know what that makes you? That makes you a good mother. It makes you somebody who's actually trying to do the right thing for your children. And I think most, most parents on the fence— have that same reaction. I had that reaction. I actually, and I know the safety of vaccine. when they, you know, do the, do the stuff for my kids. I, I, you know, back then I would just be like, Ooh, it doesn't feel right. But the truth is a lot of times our instincts and our feelings are actually incorrect. Uh, in the setting of actual you know, science. So we have to actually educate. And the truth is, look, if, if you want to spread it out over a couple of days, that's fine. I think big delays, though, actually open your child to, to getting sick, especially in the settings of measles, outbreaks, diphtheria, things like that, whooping cough coming back. But it's normal to feel that way. And I think in, here's, the, here's the last piece of that. Because our medical system is so broken, and our pediatricians have so little time, and they're so overwhelmed, they don't have the time to sit down and allay your emotional reactions to this. They don't have the time. They just say, "Hey, get this vaccination," or you know what, or you forget it. And and that's part of the reason I think uh, parents are losing trust in our healthcare system, and that's on us. So we have to do better as a system and as individual physicians. And there are some that are just so good at it that, that they're, they're having these conversations in a really meaningful way with, with parents on the fence. And slowly but surely, people are getting influenced. So, you know, it's a very complex issue, and it can't be just distilled into it, you know— um, uh, the talking points you see on the
0: news. Well, I know it has to be more than patients and and uh, you know casual listeners and viewers reaching out to. you. It has to be doctors too because the uh, the segment that you did on burnout or moral injury um, was stunning in you know in its scope uh, for, and and really gave those of us who aren't in the medical profession a peek, a little bit of insight into what doctors are facing because you always think them think of them as co conspirators with the system.
1: Yeah. And and you know what? This is the thing. So because the system is so broken, I think a lot of uh, medical professionals are lumped in with that system saying, oh, they're part of the problem. And to some extent, we are because the inertia, the fear of change, those kind of things are definitely ingrained in us and even in medical school. But the truth is these are good, idealistic people, and you catch them when they're medical students, when they're pre meds, You see the just beautiful, creative, passionate, idealistic people. Then they meet a system that's just so beyond. And, and so what happens, the system keeps asking them to do more and more with less and less, compromise here, compromise there, uh, and, they, and they won't do it. So what they do is they work harder and harder and harder, and they're super resilient to begin with. Then they break. And I, we call that moral injury. It's when good people are forced to witness, be a, be a part of, be complicit in acts that deeply transgress their moral beliefs. And they do it daily, daily, daily until they develop emotional detachment, they feel low accomplishment, feelings of depression, all those kind of things that are associated with, quote, unquote, burnout, which is really like, you know, it's like when you have kidney failure and you go on dialysis. That's like burnout. Moral injury is the kidney failure. It's the thing that causes the end stage burnout. And so, it's not just doctors. When I did that piece, it went viral. Educators, law enforcement officers, engineers, video game designers, teachers, were messaging me saying teachers. Yeah. We, we suffer moral injury every day. We care about these kids, yet we don't have the resources. There's all this administrative paperwork and it's depressing. And so, you know, it's a systems issue that we've turned into an individual issue. Oh, you're weak. You burned out here. Do a little meditation, use some essential oils, go on a vacation. No, that's <laughs> not enough. We, right. we have to stand up and say a system needs change.
0: Right. So how can we be good consumers of our own healthcare?
1: Oh, you know, I think, A big piece of this is having a voice, having a conversation with your physician, really asking those good questions, learning how to think. So, in other words, how do you parse this crazy information you have online? And if you're able to partner with your uh, healthcare professionals, then they can help you learn how to do this. And really, really, really advocating for yourself. Understand, asking questions. Why are you doing this? Is this going to actually change? Is this test I do going to change anything you do? If the answer is no, we shouldn't order it. And so you can keep yourself much safer and much healthier by being a, a, an advocate. And I think, again, like joining platforms on social media where we're trying to make a difference, even our platform, I think lending your voice as a patient is so important to get the change that we all need.
0: So true. And I love the, uh, the sign you're seeing in more doctor's offices that says my MD trumps your Google search. <laughs> 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 Have you seen you, that? And,
1: and, you know, that's, yes, it's a, it, it's a coffee mug too. It says, you know, uh, it's exactly that. And but so see, that's a double-edged thing. I think it's really funny. A lot of healthcare professionals really love that you know, because people come in and they learn a little bit on Google. And there's a phenomenon called the Dunning-Kruger effect where when you know a little, you're dangerous. You don't know what you don't know and you think you're an expert. And when you're an expert... You actually underestimate what you know, and you overestimate what other people know, so you don't teach correctly. And so Dr. Google, as an entity, you know, you Googling your, your, your symptoms, you don't want to disempower patients. You want them to take control and do some research, but then you want them to also come to the doctor and partner with them to kind of parse through all the insanity that you could get online because, not, you know, again, you're entitled to your own opinions but not your own facts, and the Internet seems to treat everything as equal.
0: Okay, one more medical thing, and then I want to move on to like the Z dog side. So, uh, intermittent fasting. This is seems to be a big craze right now. A lot of people are doing it, and I mean, the fact that you don't eat breakfast, neither do I. I'm up at two thirty in the morning, though. Uh, is it a thing? Does it work? Does it help people who are say like pre diabetic?
1: Yeah. So there's no one size fits all diet for anybody, and I think anybody trying to sell you that online is is you should be very skeptical. The thing about intermittent fasting, and again, all these approaches have some merit depending on who you are, your genetics, your own personal emotional issues around food. So intermittent fasting where you eat in a particular window, you take certain days off eating, maybe you skip a particular meal or two consistently a day, there's many different ways to do that. There are advantages and disadvantages, and the advantages are there 's some thought that it changes how you regulate insulin and your blood sugar levels, and that humans might have in fact evolved to eat just very intermittently and there 's a catabolic state where you break down uh sort of uh, uh, your harmful stuff when you 're not eating and there 's a lot of theories around it. The truth is it seems to work for a lot of people because it works with their lifestyle and it maybe can uh, help with pre-diabetes. Again, the data, the jury's still out. People don't really know yet. It's very hard to study nutrition for a lot of reasons. But the truth is, for me, it, it actually was a way to discipline myself. It actually works quite well with my lifestyle and my emotional issues around food. So in other words, I then look forward to my one meal a day. That's my particular intermittent fasting. I have dinner around four. It allows me to eat with my family. I look forward to it, but I'm not starving all day because I've gotten in the pattern of it and it helps me not to snack during the day which you know causes me to secrete insulin which makes me hungrier and makes me overeat overall so for me it works well now if you have an eating disorder if you you have you know other types of emotional issues around food intermittent fasting can be a pathway to destruction right so you, you wouldn't want to do it so again it's very individual um, along with like things like the keto diet, or whether you're going to want to be a vegan, all these things are very personal. There's no one size fits all, but sometimes it changes over the course of your life. Sometimes in fasting work, Sometimes keto. I did keto for eight months. I I got ripped. I was like, wow, I got a six pack, and uh, I'm miserable. Yeah, <laughs> like, I can't eat with I can't <laughs> eat with my family. You know, I can't I can't go to Chuck E. Cheese with my kid. So you know, these kind of things. uh, uh, you have to weigh in. So I found a, a Mediterranean diet with intermittent fasting worked for me, but, you know, it's different for every person.
0: All right. So tell me about your, your production crew. You seem, you're putting out a lot of content. Do you spend more time doing that? Do you spend more time practicing medicine? H- how do you balance your life?
1: Yeah, so over the years, it's uh, sort of shifted from being like 100% medicine to 100% medicine plus 20% being to live <laughs> and that being unsustainable. So now I see patients only on a voluntary basis at our county hospital uh, to stay connected to the clinical practice, to teach the residents and and interns and medical students, and to reteach myself, because sometimes you just learn from the learners more than anything else. And then the majority of our time is spent on our um, production, on our show, on speaking around the country, on this movement that we're trying to Uh, kindle and keep going and uh, to the transformation of healthcare. So the majority of the time is spent with that. I have a team of uh, producers um, and I have a team of 2 million people that feed me content ideas every single day. So it's, it's really a a blessing to be able to get to do this.
0: So what is next for, uh, for, for you? What, what would you like to, where would you like to see this movement go? What is the end goal? Well, As we stand,
1: we're influencing policymakers and administrators and companies and individuals around the country. We just want to increase that. We want to keep teaching, keep raising awareness about different things. Our show, Incident Report, is a sort of live show on Facebook. We want to grow that. We keep getting really, really interesting and amazing guests like Marty um, McCary, who's writing a book about price gouging in medicine. And these are dangerous things to talk about if you're in healthcare. Because, you know, you gotta look under your car to make sure that someone didn't put a bomb under it. Because you're talking about stuff that is, that is the livelihood of a lot of, uh, the legacy players. And so, but we need those voices. And I think a lot of healthcare professionals are scared to talk about the stuff because they're worried they're gonna get fired or they're gonna be stigmatized. And I don't care because I'm not making money on, uh, by seeing patients. Uh, that's not how, um, you know, I, 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 I have no conflict of interest in that. So, it, uh, I think our goal is to keep growing that advocacy and get a bigger and bigger tribe to uh, really, truly transform healthcare in this country because it's an albatross around our neck economically, socially. All these things can be improved, and our country will be better for it.
0: What are some of the trends that are encouraging to you? I mean, we've been talking about uh, this new line of anti-cancer drugs that's being developed, or is it stem cell research? I mean, will we be able to afford any of this when it, it does come out, first of all? But are you encouraged by some of these, or what's on your mind? What are you thinking about?
1: You know, I think a lot of technological advances in medicine are wonderful, assuming that we apply them correctly. So, you know, just screening everybody with genetic testing is not a great idea because they're not going to know what to do with the data, for example. But actually applying it directly and going, oh, you're at risk. You have a family history of this. Okay, let's test you and see if we can come up with ways to prevent that Alzheimer's disease that you're at risk for. Uh, you know, everything from stem cells to designer babies, um, these things are really actually quite interesting. And you, you can you can figure out how we're going to pay for them if you first focus primarily on how do we keep people healthy in the first place and that is simple stuff like diet exercise your built environment your stress levels you know how we're kind of wrecking ourselves mentally in this country by this constant striving for success and then wondering why we have an opioid epidemic and declining life expectancy three years in a row and things like that we need to take a good hard look at that and wake up on that before we start really um obsessing about the new technologies in my opinion.
0: Right. Is life harder these days? I know the suicide level is up. I mean, pretty much across across the board, particularly in some industries. Uh, technology has, you know, scattered our our brains and our attention spans. I mean, are people dealing with just a lot more these days in your opinion?
1: You know, every generation seems to think they're dealing with more than the last, but I think if we look back in the 1800s, life was pretty darn hard in those days. I think it's more that what we what we've encountered is like you said, technology, social media, ways of uh, being in the world that are at odds with, you know, millions of years of evolution for us. So what ends up happening is we get stressed, we're we're, you know, for example, giving uh, young girls social media, Instagram, Facebook, you know, Twitter, these kind of things, Snapchat. It's it's the equivalent of, say, giving a young boy a loaded handgun. Young boys are kind of wired to be rambunctious and physically a little bit violent. So you give them a handgun, there's going to be murders everywhere. If you give a young girl social media their equivalent of violence is relational aggression. So they will actually try to damage people's reputations, gang up, form clicks, do things like that. Social media accentuates that, along with its fear of missing out and the bullying and things that happen. And now you've created a crisis. So these are, that's just one example of how our current world has created problems that our ancestors didn't have that we can actually solve. It's just we're in transition. So I'm actually encouraged we're going to go in the right direction. But in the meantime, you're going to have you know increased suicide rates, drug addiction, uh, um, the, the most anxious and depressed generation of kids that we've had, according to data. And so th- these are real problems. So we've got to make noise about it, figure out what's going on. But we don't throw out the technology. We don't you know, say, oh, life is harder now. I don't think it is. I think we just have to get these things right.
0: Right. You know, when I look at, um, I've seen so many documentaries about uh, FDA members that kind of go back and forth between they're on a pharmaceutical firm's board and then they're on the FDA. And uh, is there a regulatory structure at all looking out for the American people?
1: Oh, uh, what a great question. Um, I'm going to say this: I think we throw our uh, regulators under the bus pretty quick. I know some of these people, Um, A lot of them are really good people in a a difficult system. And you're right. I think this lobbying and this sort of uh, treadmill of going back and forth is not productive. But unfortunately, since they need a level of expertise, they need to understand the industry they're regulating. A lot of times that's a way that that's done. So it's actually a lot more nuanced than it seems on the surface. However, having talked to people who are at the highest levels of government, a lot of these people are really good people. They're emotionally invested in doing the right thing. And if we can support them while making sure our regulations prevent, you know, abuse, because that does happen a thousand percent, I think we can see a lot of progress. But I think there's a lot of cynicism that we can overcome by actually working together with these folks.
0: Okay. That is so encouraging. And I love, um, I love that, you know, for all of your realism, you do have an optimistic approach. Uh, so and finally, and I ask a lot of uh, my guests this, what do you do personally to stay creative. I mean it's very difficult. You're putting out all this content, uh, you have a family that you're raising, you're 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 doing your business, you're doing your clinical practice. What do you do personally to kind of punch into your creativity and kind of recharge?
1: Mm, great question. And this is like <laughs> I think creatives around the world struggle with this. Like how do you find the news? How do you stay open? One thing I've learned because I'm conditioned by my medical training to to feel like more work equals more output, more success. You, You can work your way out of any problem through just more effort. And that's not how creativity works. What I've learned is actually working one to two hours on creative stuff a day is actually the sweet spot because that and it's in the morning for me when I'm most creative. That's when I'm coming up with ideas. That's when I'm meeting with my team. That's when I'm brainstorming. Then the rest of the day, you can do the menial stuff that makes it roll, like running the social media and making sure to answer messages. But focus your creative activity in the time when you're most creative. Don't try to force it over an eight-hour day. Humans are not designed to work a nine-to-five. They really aren't. And I think future technology is going to allow us to free us up to do these sort of project-based things where we bring our own unique creativity to the table, generate value that gets us paid while being true to who we are. And so for me, it's, it's learning, okay, I'm not always creative. There's times when it's really bad, and if I try to force it, it's going to suck. So you have to recognize that um, and recognize your limitations. have a great team, and be open. I think openness to experience is a key personality trait that I think helps creatives to uh, be there when the muse actually strikes.
0: Okay, Dr. Zubin Demanya, thank you so much for your time. Tell us where we can all connect with you and where uh, new people who are listening to this can find you.
1: So all our social media and archive of our videos is at zdogmd.com, Z-D-O-G-G-M-D. Two G's because one is necessary but not sufficient to be a gangster. And, <laughs> and on <laughs> Facebook, uh, you can search MD on Facebook. That's our main platform where most of our uh, action is.
0: Love it. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time. So appreciate it.
1: What a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Zubin Damania, MD. Such an entertaining guy. And whether you agree or don't agree with him, particularly on the vaccination thing, I know a lot of people are on the fence on that. The fact that our healthcare system needs improvement is something pretty much all of us can agree on. So if you search his name or even just search M he'll pop right up. And he's back in Cali, so we can claim him as our own again. Coming up, I've got an Entrepreneur's Unleashed event. If you're in the Sacramento area, I'll be on a panel with Uriah Faber that happens July 18th. Um, Mark Haney is actually organizing this event, his organization. It's in the afternoon. I've got a link to the event below, and you can also just Google it uh, as well and great feedback on the last few podcast episodes, which you can check out on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. Look for a fresh agenda and subscribe. You'll see me dressed in black on this kind of blue, turquoise background. Just subscribe because I've got great conversations with uh, supermodel Kathy Ireland, who is an amazing businesswoman, uh, celebrity chef Tyler Florence, former Cosmo editor-in-chief, Kate White and the country's first African-American female billionaire, not Oprah. She was way before Oprah. Her name is Janice Bryant-Howroyd, and she is amazing. So don't forget to check that out. And check us out each morning on the KFBK Morning News on News 93.1 FM. Sam, Shane, and I are there every weekday from 5 a.m. until 9 a.m., and we're doing deeper stories, more relevance, more context, and many perspectives. And thank you for being here. Thanks to my sponsors, New Age Aerial and New Age Designs. Reach out anytime. And thank you so much for listening. This has been A Fresh Agenda. Talk to you soon. And let's stay connected. Conversations to connect your productivity and creativity. This is A Fresh Agenda.